This episode is brought to you by Netflix presenting Beef. Nominated for 13 Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Limited or Anthology Series. CBS Mornings calls Beef the most powerful piece of art I've seen in many years. From Emmy-nominated writer and director Lee Sung-jin and starring nominees lead actor Steven Yun and lead actress Ali Wong. RogerEbert.com calls Steven Yun one of the best actors of his generation. In The Atlantic raids, Ali Wong has never been funnier or more heartbreaking. Beef, the year's best limited series, is all the rage. From Variety, celebrating more than 118 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. Succession may be over, but Emmy-nominated director Mark Mylod has one potential idea for a reboot. I, I, I kind of like the idea of a Victorian version as well, where you flash back where it's the same characters, but in some kind of time vortex where it's the like Dickensian times. I'd watch that, particularly if it was a cheesy musical as well. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this episode of the award-winning Variety Award Circuit Podcast, we talk to director Mark Mylod about the end of Succession and his Emmy-nominated episode, Connor's Wedding. But first, on the Award Circuit Roundtable, Paris Barclay, Emmy-nominated director and executive producer of Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, sits down with us to talk about the Emmys, the strike, Dahmer, his career, and more. It's all next on this all-director edition of the Variety Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Paris Barclay has made Emmy history as the first black director to be nominated in the drama, comedy, and now limited or anthology series or TV movie categories. The one-time DJ president has been nominated and won for NYPD Blue in 1998 and 1999, and has also been nominated for The West Wing in 2002 and Glee in 2010, 2013, and 2014. Now he's up for Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Barclay stopped by the Award Circuit Roundtable for a wide-ranging conversation about the Emmys, the strikes, even his early career doing music videos for LL Cool J. But we began by noting the folder of notes he brought along. Paris Barclay is the most like prepared we have ever had truly. for a guest in the I, history truly. of this podcast. Well, you'll find it's a secret to my directing. Can we just have you like? Can I just interview you for everything? Because like sometimes I'll be like, I did that like a year ago, and I really can't remember. So you're like, oh, okay. Well, um, welcome to the the roundtable. Uh, I'm uh, TV editor Michael Schneider, and I thought it would be really fun today. Uh, well, first off, I've got my usual suspects here: Emily Longaretta, and Jazz Tanke. Hello, and we have a special guest joining us. Uh, I wonder who in the house? The one and only, the the icon himself, Paris Barclay. Yes, which some people call me Paris Sparkley, despite her. <laughs> Taking the ass and slapping it on my last name. Yeah, is is it because of all all the bling, all the all the awards? It's the, it's yeah, the, the it's, sparkly. It's, uh... <laughs> it's just my sparkly personality. Yeah, that too. Well, welcome, Paris. Thanks for for coming by and, Thank you and joining for us. Me. Appreciate it. But yeah, you are the look, how prepared you are now. Now I feel embarrassed that <laughs> Paris was like so so. You know, like okay, what is the plan? What are we talking about? What what's the structure? Like, and I'm like, we don't do that. It's free for yeah. it's, it's, like it's improv. Yeah. Wait, are you a Virgo? Uh, I'm not a Virgo. I'm a Cancer, which okay. is not very planny planny. 
<laughs> but it is very chef chef. Yeah. And I think the whole yeah. thing is like cooking. I, I always say directing is like cooking. I think this is like it too. You have to have some sort of plan for the meal. You have to have a recipe. You have to right. have the ingredients. I can't just show up yeah. and and give you a cake out of nowhere. You got to have everything ready. Now I'm really embarrassed, Paris. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is like eaten mess. <laughs> he just talks in all in and this is why many Emmys, no Emmys. Exactly. So, exactly. Paris, is this something that but people who know you, who have uh, worked with you through the years as a director, as a producer, do they know you as someone who comes like over prepared? Or they know, okay, Paris is going to come and we are in good hands because he's got it locked down. Well, I, I'm, I don't think I'm over prepared. I think I'm prepared just right. Yeah. <laughs> which to me is a lot. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of people waiting for you to make decisions and to, to help them through the things they need to be helped through. And if you come as a director anyway and you're not prepared to deal with it, then everything starts to fall apart and people wonder why you're there and you don't really have a good reason to be there. So I've always planned the days and I planned the projects that I worked on. And when I'm a producer, I plan the production to make it beneficial for the most people yeah does that come out of also i mean you've been doing this for a while so you remember tv back in the days I when do. the director was just sort of almost work for hire uh, they would come in one week and they'd be like who is this this guy like you know he doesn't know the show he's just coming in and directing an episode uh, keep your opinions to yourself well it's- i had a weird childhood that way i mean i did a few episodes like that as a journeyman director as we'd say mm-hmm. but then i got an nypd blue Ah, and then yes. I was a producer. And yeah. After doing a few episodes there, I was a producer. And that show was largely done by the three directors who lived there, yeah. which was Mark Tinker, Michael Robin, and myself for a few years. We basically rotated on the episodes and did them because the – how should I say it nicely? Production was somewhat chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> and it helped to have directors who knew the show and knew the people just you know could come in. And when David delivered a script, which would usually be mid-afternoon, we could start working on it and, and jump in and have everything ready so and that became a thing I mean then I worked with Kurt Sutter and then I worked with Aaron Sorkin so a lot of times I worked on shows where I was a member of the family already and as a producer hanging around all the time working closely with the writers so I've done a lot of that and lately it's been a lot with Ryan Murphy yeah yeah, that, names that you just listed, just, like, yeah. oh, just a few, just a few <laughs> yeah. people in, in this industry. Like you, it's insane. It's insane. But but it is true. Like when when I thought about, especially in the '90s, people would ask me like, "Who's a TV director?" I didn't know many names. Paris Barclay was one of the few names I actually yeah. did know. You were kind of one of those first who actually elevated what a director meant in television. Mm. Did that feel a little pioneering back in the day? Uh, you know, being a, a, a producing director when there weren't many of them. Jeez, I, 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 I kind of guess I came in at the right time. I mean, I knew a few names. I knew Greg Hoblett from Hill Street Blues because I loved Hill Street Blues when I was a kid. And so that's a name that registered. And then when he had done the pilot of NYPD Blue, which really showed you know what a director can contribute to, um, to a film – I like to call them films, by the way, or sometimes movies. Um, and not <laughs> oh, that, that'll get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Careful with that. <laughs> so I knew them, and I knew people like Bruce Paltrow, and I, there were people that I recognized the work of even when I was a kid. Thomas Carter was out there, so I wasn't even the first black pioneer of this whole thing. So I had some role models to, to build up to and to look up to. But then eventually, you know, I just got lucky and got on shows that millions of people saw. I mean, when I did ER, 40 million people were watching ER. And it's so weird to think about that in the world now where if we get 5 million people, wow, yeah, Yeah. we did great in the ratings. But then every 
I think it was on Thursday night, every sixth person in America was watching that show live. Wow. You know, they were, walk- they were staying home to watch ER. One in six people who lived in the country. So there's nothing like that anymore, and I doubt that there ever will be. Yeah. No, it's it's true because not like Netflix is ever going to tell us anything, right? <laughs> Netflix. I think it's highly unlikely. <laughs> it doesn't seem to serve their purposes to be no. transparent. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, yeah, obviously there there are things going on right now with the negotiations with the mm-hmm. uh, WGA, where maybe we will start to see a, a little more transparency. It, it that would be a hope. I mean, I am a WGA member, and, I, and there's a lot of good that can come out of all this. And I hope that's one of the things. I hope that we can force them to say, hey, it isn't good enough to just uh, for us to take your word that this is how something's doing. We've tried looking at outside measurements, but we want to know from inside what it's really doing. I mean, it's great. Your one billion hour suits is enormous and blah, 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 whenever it suits your purpose. But we need to know it kind of for every show. We need to know every show because as I look on that top 10 on Netflix, I wonder, well, what's number 10? How many billion hours or or whatever the measure they have are people watching that show? Mm -hmm. I noticed that the number one show, I think last night when I was looking at it, was Dahmer. Again, not our Dahmer, but Dahmer, the uh, documentary. I'm going, why are people still watching that? I mean, I think that would be information that all of us, journalists and directors, would be extremely interested in having. And we certainly would be interested in having it to make sure we know we're getting paid properly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and suits right now. Suits Suits and Dharma. Suits, I can't explain. (laughs) I can't explain suits. I've never seen suits. I mean, you know, I'm not a Meghan Markle stan, so I I don't know why I would watch suits. Um, I'm sure it's very delightful. I I don't want to offend anyone. If you love suits. Uh, <clears throat> but I did notice one thing that was super interesting about suits. It just came on in June. So it is new to Netflix. So it's, it's almost like a Netflix original because people didn't really watch it on USA. And I think that's the way people saw it on their queue and said, oh, Meghan Markle's in the show. I've never heard of it. And then suddenly it just started ballooning. Yeah. Right. Well, it's interesting what we end up like binging like, like later on. Jazz, tell Paris what you've been binging lately. Um, I just spent the last few months re-binging NYPD Blue. Oh, no! I was obsessed with that show when it first aired when I was living in the UK, and I stayed away past my bedtime, 10 p.m., I think Monday nights or Thursday nights, I forget. But I think we were on Monday nights. Mondays, right? Tuesday night. Whatever night it was, it was a school <laughs> night. I shouldn't have been up watching it, but I was. And I revisited it, and it still holds up. But it is like, so good. You, you, the um, Hearts and Soul episode... Mm-hmm. Is that's, a movie unto itself. And yeah, that's Jimmy Smith's final episode for those of you who mm-hmm. don't recognize the title. But I was watching it for another appearance that I had again. And I watched Lost Israel Part 2, which was yeah. the, the episode that I first got the Emmy for. I said, I haven't watched this in like 10 years. Let me see. It was so good. I mean, just of its time and as a piece of art. It's like a one story. It's just an A story. Yeah. It was the second part of a two-parter. It was 90 minutes long. It, it was breaking all these rules, even at that time. And it was emotional, and it was very calm and serious. And, you know, the actors were so extraordinary. And I thought, I want to do more television like that. <laughs> it's a portrait of New York, too, in yeah. the 90s, right? Yeah, it really is. What was it? Did you watch the Hearts and Soul episode? Uh, I have not watched that recently because I have a physical reaction to it when I watch. Okay, I just break out crying and then I yeah. can't stop for a long period of time. Um, so, I was so, going to say, like, what do you remember about being told that you were going to direct that episode? Uh, I was upset. 
I, I was a big fan of Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith was my friend. I did not want to be doing the episode where he left. I knew it would be emotional. I didn't know what the script would be like at that point when we were just assigning the episodes. So I sort of said to Mark Tinker and to Stephen Bochco, can't I do the first episode after where Ricky Schroeder, we'd already decided that Ricky Schroeder was going to come in, could do that. And then, Mark, you could do Jimmy's last episode. And Bochco said no. He said, you are going to do it, and Mark, I need Mark to get, you know, Ricky Schroeder upright. So I said, okay. So I ended up doing it, and then I got the script, and it was so sort of mesmerizing and original and beautiful. It was Milch and Nick Wooten, who's gone on to do great things. And it was very different for NYPD Blue. It had dream sequences, and it just was extraordinary. So I just knew, as I think I said in my Emmy speech, that's when I won the Emmy is when I got the script. You know, because the writing was so strong, and this comes back to why I think what the Writers Guild are standing up for is so important. The writing is so strong that then I can sort of really build, invest, walk everyone through, improve somewhat, but not too much to improve there, but just really shape something into something that really became, you know, greater than the parts. Yeah. And then you got to work with Jimmy again on Sons of Anarchy? I did. I, Jimmy and Keep Recurring, I worked with him yet again on Scandal. Oh. Or was it Scandal? No, How to Get Away with Murder. Yeah. How do we, he kept coming back. He keeps coming back in my life because uh, I just think he's a terrific actor and is, is highly underrated, I think, in terms of what he can do. So, no, I bring him back from the dead every <laughs> once in a while, and, and we nostalgically talk about those days. That's nice. That's that's nice. Um, you mentioned your your Emmy. Uh, I like to mention my Emmy. I, I like I like that. Hey, no, this I is, don't. I don't like to. If you're it, listening. So. You don't know me. I was being sarcastic. It's Paris Sparkly. <laughs> Paris Sparkly. And there's two. Two Emmys. So we should we should throw that in there. Well, they look at each other on the shelves. They're like lesbian lovers. They just <laughs> they keep their wings apart and they stare into each other's eyes we on my that. shelf. It's, it's a beautiful thing. That's beautiful. What, what do you remember about that first time win, winning the Emmy? Uh, <laughs> well, it was very, very strange because I was nominated against my then boss, Mark Tinker, who was nominated in the same year for um, the pilot of Brooklyn South, which is David Milch's show after NYPD Blue, which didn't obviously go on to, you know, great fame. Um, we both won. So, so Roma Downey said, there's a tie in this category. I can't do a voice. It was, it was something like that. That's good. That's good. Right. <laughs> and we were very upset because how often is there a tie at the Emmys? There this isn't is, any. They're, they're no. In the directing category, this is irritating. The first winner is Mark Tinker for Brooklyn South. So Mark runs up and he talks forever. <laughs> he doesn't stop. And I'm going, shit. <laughs> Who is the other winner? But there's still a chance. <laughs> there's so. still a chance. And in fact, slightly better chance because there's one less person mm-hmm. in the competition. And then she comes back and she announces my name. And I was, you know, I was overwhelmed because I'd only directed maybe 15 episodes or so of television at that time. So I was pretty new. And then to actually win the Emmy for this episode was. Somewhat of a surprise, but since I loathe people bringing paper out, and then no, I didn't have any notes. You, you didn't have the, the notes. I didn't have notes <laughs> no. um, because I had been taught in high school that if you don't have notes, you can use mnemonics of something around the room to to remember your speech. Mm-hmm. And so I remembered my speech by the Emmy itself, and I, I believe I said, you know, the legs were the crew, and you know, Stephen was this gigantic globe, and the base that we all stood on was David Milch's writing, something like that. I, I, you have to look it up in Emmy history. So I just had the statue was the thing that reminded me of the things that I wanted to say. And I just said them and I was done in one minute and no music. 
Crushed it. They, they didn't. They didn't play. <laughs> they you didn't off. play me off. Love it. <laughs> nope. They did not. You didn't have to do that thing that it seems like everyone now when they're played off does, which is stop the music. Stop the music. This is my moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to stop now. I'm on the stage. <laughs> yeah. But I'm kind of like of the opposite. I think it's better to just get the fuck off. I mean, I mean, I don't know if I can say you're that. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're I think it's just better just to say your thing and go than to overextend your welcome. Mm-hmm. It just seems to me like you lose the audience a bit. Yeah. So, you know, have something tight, have it in your mind, you know, thank the people who need to be thanked and the ones who won't kill you for not being thanked and get off the That's stage. good. So you're, as a director, you're thinking about the director of the Emmy telecast. Like, they're, they're like, come on, we're moving this But thing. I'm also thinking about Hart. When I watch the show, I love the speech. Like, Shirley Ralph, she can go on and on because she's always going to do something cool. But I really look for the heart. I'm wondering if people will reveal what it really is about themselves in that moment that brought them there. I've always mentioned that I'm sober because I think when I first got the Emmy, I've been, I was sober maybe for eight years, something like that, and how that really changed the trajectory of my life. So I always want to mention that just to give hope to people who are out there who are struggling. So I always say something in just a phrase that, that clues them into that to let them know it's possible. Yeah, that's really Love nice. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's it's a time that people are you know often. I was drunk sitting on my couch, dreaming I'm getting everywhere, you know, just totally high and wondering how I was going to do it. And if someone said to me in that moment, "You can do this. Here I am doing it. I'm sober. I'm standing there," that's that could be very powerful. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. And now you've run the gamut. I mean, drama, comedy, limited, you name it. You're there. <laughs> I haven't done documentaries yet, but I'm working on that. Yeah, are you? Yeah, I am. I'm in the middle of doing this. Yeah, I got the T-shirt on. Oh, you can't oh. see it because it's a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm working on this Billy Preston documentary. Billy Preston, that yeah. I just finished, you know, which has been fantastic. Um, you know, it was a great story, and I love music, and everything I've done has been musical. But Billy Preston, when I saw Get Back and, you know, that whole yeah. thing, and that we were already beginning the documentary, yeah, yeah. I thought, what's Billy Preston's story? Mm-hmm. And that story is deep. I mean, he, you know, I remember him from the hit records, but I didn't know what we've uncovered in the documentary about, you know, his raising in the church and things that happened to him along the way and how that eventually led to, you know, a decline fueled by drugs and yet continuing to perform. It's a whole life story that's been incredibly deep. And, you know, we talked to Eric Clapton and Mick Jagger and, you know, all sorts of people that he worked with, Ringo Starr. So it's going to be interesting. So I'm going for documentary next. We love it. That's, that's my long way of saying that. You just <laughs> like every year being like in the history column. The... Well, it's not just for history. I'm just thinking, what am I going to do here in the, you know, not the twilight of my years, but in the last quarter of my career? That's and dark. Just... <laughs> you just got dark. Wow. <laughs> and I just, I just love documentaries. I mean, I've just been watching them. And like everyone in the pandemic, it just, you know, I got – into a wormhole of documentaries because yeah. they just, you know, I, I remember seeing I, um, I'm Not Your Negro and then going mm-hmm. back to Susan 4 and then I love the music documentaries like Whitney and White Horse Pictures, which is one of the producers of this documentary. I didn't know I was binging on their Bee Gees and on their Beatles <laughs> eight days a week before I even worked with them on this documentary. I was loving their Pavarotti. And so I just got sort of into the whole thing and now I'm kind of a doc yeah. crazed director. It. Do you feel like also because Dahmer was obviously not a doc, but based on something very real that a lot of people are then Googling or going on Netflix and watching the doc, do you think that kind of like also kind of yeah, scratched and, that itch a little bit? I think it's too bad. I wish they wouldn't do that. Mm. <laughs> 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 and, and, you know, and the real reason is because I think 
the story that we told in Dahmer was really to be focused on the victims and the right. systemic, you know, this racism of the police and the power of white privilege. It's a story of white privilege triumphant mm-hmm. in an odd way. That's the story we were telling. If you go to some of the stuff that just looks at Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, as, as Stephanie pointed out, Stephanie, the editor, who, yeah, who, who uh, Jazz did a piece on, that we were trying as hard as possible not to make Dahmer sympathetic. Right. We don't want you to like Dahmer. You can see him. You can watch what he's doing. But you're not supposed to empathize with him. We wanted you to empathize with the victims. And I worry that some of the documentaries, the victims are just names and people that he met and people that he killed. And I think in the series we were trying to humanize and expand that that definition of not only who the victims are, but what they meant to society. Yeah. How much of a challenge was that? Because as you said, I spoke with Stephanie, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's Evan Peters playing Jeffrey Dahmer. Like how did you – how do we squash his charisma? Basically, <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, as someone who's well, been in love with him for 20 years as the character on TV, uh, this time I wasn't. So you guys did a good job. Oh, of that's it. good. I was lucky to be. I mean, that's why. But you see it on. We see yeah. it on Twitter. People that are obsessed with him, and it's a little creepy, you know? It is a little creepy. A lot creepy, um, actually. Well, I hate to reveal actual secrets on the podcast, <laughs> but there's a lot you can do with what you put him in opposition to. And so what we did was with Rodney Burford to play Tony Hughes in episode six is we elevated him. You know, we spent time with him. We allowed you to fall in love with him. And then when I shot him, he's taller than Evan. I shot him closer than Evan. I gave him more weight. As, as the show went on, mm-hmm. he tended to be in the position of power in the relationship. And it really helped you sort of, you know, not so much see Evan as the protagonist, but really see Rodney, Tony as the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And that's really one of the ways we do it. And also Evan actually is not very attached to being incredibly charismatic and beautiful. Right. So you can shoot him looking ratty and nasty. <laughs> and you know, he's not he's about the story. Yeah. And he knew the story really wasn't Dahmer. Mm-hmm. Even though it's titled Dahmer, the Dahmer, the Dahmer, the Dahmer. Right. There's a lot of Dahmers. <laughs> There's a lot of Dahmers. Like Dahmer, you know, Dahmer yeah. the Dahmer. I, think I don't know the exact title, but it has a lot of Dahmers in it. That's all I'm saying. Right, right. Um, but <laughs> even though that was the title, which I guess people get get them to click on it or whatever, to choose it in their queue, um, we really wanted to just elevate these victims. And I think as the show went on, we did that. The beginning of it, there was a lot of you know stuff that probably – you know, upset my mother. But after we got to episode <laughs> six on, I think we really told the story we wanted mm-hmm. to tell. Yeah. And you were hesitant, sorry, if you were, you were hesitant about about taking this on, yes? Yeah? So Hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what made you decide yes? Uh, well, Ryan did. Um, <laughs> what most people say. He got me. I hear so many people have been cast in, in you know, American Horror and different things mm-hmm. have the same story. Uh, but in my case, Ryan calls and said, you know, we're doing Jeffrey Dahmer next as an American crime story series. I think it was originally was what he was thinking of. Or mm-hmm. maybe it was just as this special monster sequence. And I said, okay, bye. because i knew jeffrey dahmer i knew the story i lived through that period i didn't want to be a part of elevating his horror Mm -hmm. or making people more interested in jeffrey dahmer Mm -hmm. i just didn't want to do it and then he started talking about tony hughes and as he spun the story and you can imagine ryan's a good storyteller Mm -hmm. he's he's pretty succinct he knew the things that would get me there's this black gay deaf man who falls into the basically the web of, of Jeffrey Dahmer. And for a while, they date. I said, Jeffrey Dahmer dated people? He said, for a year. 
is what they've discovered. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And this character, you'll see his family, and a lot of this episode will be done in silence. You'll be with them as deaf people, and you'll just have to figure out your way through it. And that sounded challenging and kind of wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's the first, I think like one of the first episodes of TV that I've watched that you don't look down at your phone. You don't look away because you can't, but also you're so engaged yeah. that there is no way you're looking away from this because you need to see it all. So. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do love that. I, and I was fortunate in that getting Rodney Burford and yeah. getting the other actors there, you know, because Evan is a powerhouse mm-hmm. and you have to have a match. And here's an actor who had just done Deaf You, a reality mm-hmm. show, and he's going to be the guy who's going to go against mm-hmm. Evan Peters. And although the um, Television Academy didn't find him in those lists of names, I think it was an Emmy-worthy performance Absolutely. that he gave. Yeah. And it's his really first dramatic role. And so I had to be his teacher and coach and use everything I knew about the camera to help elevate him in his performance. And fortunately, I had Evan helping too because Evan kind of coached him. Mm-hmm. Evan was not psychopathically Jeffrey Dahmer 24-7, as you may have heard. <laughs> He's not, not method. He's method, but he also is conscious. Yeah. So he comes out of it and he was definitely very helpful to Rodney and, you know, just giving him the support he needed, telling him when something was really good, even before I could get there, he could, you could see that Evan was, you know, helping to buck him up because when you're new, that means the world to you. Evan Peters just said that take was great. That's like, you know, you can go home on a cloud then. Mm -hmm. And so he used that power that he has for good Mm -hmm. and not evil to, in order to help the show be better. How, you, you mentioned the the importance of telling the story of the the families and 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 the victims and and you know how conscious were you of that while shooting and and also sort of the reaction that you knew th- that uh, the, the family members would have to to the series just existing. Yeah, I, I we didn't know at the time we were filming it that there would be you know the strong reaction that came out later, um, but we did know as we were filming it that we wanted to make sure they were treated not only with dignity but actually elevated. I mean, we really wanted the family members to be, you know, the stars. And uh, Tony Hughes's mother, um, Shirley, is awesome. And that's a really big part of the episode. And so we took great care with those scenes. Those scenes with the family, we rehearsed. You hardly ever get a chance to rehearse. But we got to rehearse and work them all together so there would be a true dynamic. And the scene in the pizza parlor with uh, his two deaf friends and Michael Anthony Spady and Jared DeBusk, that we rehearsed for most of the afternoon, just you know, a couple of days before doing it, just so they could really have the familiarity they would need to convey that. And then we got there to shoot it, and I said, you know what, I just want to be where the audience is, sitting at the table with these guys, watching them talk, not being interrupted by sound, not being told what to feel by music, just letting their signs and their language and the way they express themselves and their faces tell the story. So I just felt each of these things was an honor to do whenever we were elevating them. Is uh, when you finish a project like that, like uh, you know, when is when is it done in your mind? Like, are are you able to go back at some point and like, are you proud of a specific thing or moment or or something choice that you made that you go back and watch, or or are you when you're done, you're done? No, I, I revisit and I regret 
<laughs> like <Yeah>. most directors. <laughs> you know, I look back and I say, why did I do that? Not so much in silence. In silence, I'm really, really happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that came out to be pretty much what I'd hoped it would be. But that's not always true. There are episodes of Glee that I did that I just thought, why was I thinking <laughs> Some, your episodes bad. are some of my favorites, though. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I but I was like going, whoa. Because <laughs> uh, well, we well, didn't know anything, and we were just doing stuff. A different time. It was a different time. And it was very, I mean, there were a lot of experimental things going on. <laughs> it was very too, experimental. So not and, everything's going to work. <laughs> exactly. And it was meant to be fun, and that's mm-hmm. something different. So it didn't have the control that we have sometimes. So I do go back. And I, when I was watching those old NYPD Blue things, though, um, I didn't regret a single thing. I actually yeah. thought they were all really well done. And I wondered how I did that. And the only thing I could think of is inspiration. I mean, that's just you're inspired by the script. You're inspired by the people. You have the actors. You have the director of photography. You finally have the editors that you need. You have Stephen Botchko and David Milch sort of overseeing the whole thing in a really fam- familial environment. Mm-hmm. People – don't really understand. When we made NYPD Blue, we'd shoot it, the director would edit it, and then when the director's cut was ready, you'd all go up to Stephen's screening room, which was upstairs in the Botchko building, and Stephen would be there, and David Milch would lay on the floor, and the post people would be there, the editor would be there, and you, the director, would be there, and they would screen your cut, which hardly ever happens. The last time this happened with me was Dan Fogelman did this on pitch, but it's rarely done. And they'd all watch your cut, and then David would talk about it, and they'd give instructions to the editors, and you got to hear what that was like. And in that process, you became a better director and certainly a better director for that show <laughs> because you saw inside out your mistakes, but as well as the things yeah. that they really thought you did great. So that's part of the reason why that culture, I miss it because I think that culture of exchange has sort of been lost. I think you mentioned pitch. Gone Wait, too I was soon. About to, I was about <laughs> to mention it. I was right? about to mention it because I was curious for you, someone who's been in TV for this long, and what we talked about with you know the Netflix top ten and what makes a hit show. A show like Pitch is something that, as journalists, we talk about all the time. I mean, I, I bring it up all the time. I watch it with my dad. I watch it, you know, alone. But what is it that makes a hit? Like, do you understand what makes a hit and what doesn't? Because that seemed like it was, and then it yeah, was gone. I think time would have made that a hit, yeah. and I think mm-hmm. Dan Fogelman agrees with me. Mm-hmm. Um, not speaking for Dan, but it wasn't given enough time to yeah. really grow and really find its audience. It was hinging too much on, we need to get a big bang out right away. And that show was really strong. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. Kylie's performance was really strong. The scripts were actually great. It was exciting to do. I wasn't a baseball fan, but it was exciting to go to Dodger Stadium and mm-hmm. to actually be able to do scenes yeah. in Dodger Stadium. And the stories they told were groundbreaking mm-hmm. about this first woman in professional sports, her struggles. And then she was cast and she ended up being a black woman, which it was not scripted to be. But she was just cast as the best person who was both an athlete and an actor, happened to be Kylie Bunbury. And so now we have this new dimension to it. And, you know, kudos to Dan Fogelman for just saying, well, that's the girl we want. So mm-hmm. that's the story we're telling. <laughs> yeah. And so we went on and did that, which also added this whole dimension to it. So I've often said if I could do – if every show could mean as much as pitch because that meant a lot too. I mean I still get texts and DMs from young girls who were inspired by that show. Usually mm-hmm. young girls, like very young. Yeah. Uh, were inspired by pitch and really want to do stuff. And it's not just doing sports. They right. just want to do other stuff. Yeah. They want to break into different areas that seem to have been only man's world. And sometimes it's being a director. Mm-hmm. And so I think if that show is encouraging them, 
um, it's worth doing. So yeah. I keep looking out yeah. for things like that. And they've talked about bringing that show back every once in a while. So who knows? <clears throat> I would love it to come back. And, uh, you know, it, it just – it was really um, – it was a lot of fun. It meant a lot to me. Another show I wanted to ask you about because since I've been writing about this business now for, for, for a minute. <laughs> yeah, for several minutes. <laughs> I, re- I remember when City of Angels came mm. on and that was, that yeah. was going to be a big show. That yeah. was another one that, uh, you know, we wrote a lot about. and, and You made- are old. <laughs> Thank you, Paris. <laughs> I am, by the way. Okay, so City of Angels, for those of you in the audience who are uninitiated, was a show that I co-created with Stephen Bochco and Nicholas Wooden back in like 2000. And it was a black hospital drama set in L.A. And it starred Blair Underwood and Vivica Fox. And in the supporting cast <laughs> was Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer. And Hill I mean, Harper. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Maya Rudolph. I mean, I mean, these are the people who are in this r- hospital. Ridiculous. I that, that was insane. Who were just there. And Nisi Nash was even in it for a minute. <sighs> I mean, there's so much talent that we had there. But what we didn't really have is we really weren't able to tell, you know, I think the real stories of that real hospital. I think in some ways we conformed a bit too much to network television. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so if that show now, if it were on streaming or, or somewhere, it'd be a very different it show. It would be a very yeah. different show, and it would be great because it would really deal with what's really going on in an underserved community in a hospital that's falling apart. Um, we didn't quite get there. I mean, we struggled to get there. So is that uh, – do, do you look at a, something like that and say, I could do that again? I mean, are there moments where maybe the, the ones that got away that, that you think, now's time that we could revisit that and, and do it the way it should be done? Yeah, I do every once in a while. I mean, I did a pilot for Showtime called Hate about the hate crimes unit of the New York Police Department that starred Marsha Gay Harden and Eamon Walker. And we finished the pilot, but it was way ahead of its time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, dealing with hate crimes and dealing with the language of hate crimes and yeah. with the bias unit, it just was too much for most everybody who saw it. But I think we could do that today again. I think that's the kind of thing that could come back and, you know, we could actually deal with some of the intolerance that we're feeling now. And when we did that show, I can't remember, maybe it was 2010, 2008, somewhere in there. When we did that, it wasn't quite the rise of white supremacy that we have and all the issues that we have right now. Yeah. That would make that really interesting. Yeah. So so maybe one of these shows? Maybe. Like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I know you're um, – I, I, I have a priority list. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> You're not going to share I with us right now. Yeah. yeah, there are some that I'd rather revisit sooner than others. Yeah. What yeah. is one you don't want to revisit? Can we do that? Ooh, yeah. There's lots of shows that died a good death. You know, I think uh, I think Sons of Anarchy is on the revisit yeah. list. I mean, we could go back and do the you know the previous prequel or something. We could mm-hmm. do something yeah, with Sons sure. of Anarchy. That's on the in treatment for me is on the we could do it again. Not mm. not as it's done now, but I want Gabriel Byrne back in that chair. Mm. There was something magical about mm-hmm. Gabriel Byrne that you know even though the chair was painful to him, uh, very painful to him, I wouldn't. But you know, I did shows like Lost, which I don't think we should do again. I did. Yeah. That was a moment in time. Yeah, that was a moment in time. Let's not do that again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's leave it, was, it where it is. Uh, it was great at the time. It and was. There's you know lots of procedurals that I did, or the shows like Numbers that I don't miss. I mean, there are things that you know disappear from my resume every once in a while. Do you do you do you miss uh, your uh, your DGA uh, uh, leadership days? No. I mean, that I'm sure. <laughs> 
it's a full-time job and I'm supposed to be a director too. Yeah. People don't understand being the head of a union is like you don't get paid and you literally have an office and you're literally on call constantly and there's always things to do and there's always speeches to give and there's always negotiations to prepare for and it's just like – when I was last president, I think I was in Wales for one year of it doing a show, The Bastard Executioner with Kurt Sutter mm-hmm. for FX. And that was really difficult. So, no, I don't miss it. It's it's nice being an ex-president. You know, it's nice being like Barack Obama. You know, <laughs> being able to go around and every once in a while you say something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not it's not in a position I long for. Yeah, yeah. Do you uh, – you know, not not to get too in the weeds with what's going on right now. But what's going on? Something going on? <laughs> oh, nothing's going on in my house. Um, slow, slow time in the industry. Summer. <laughs> obviously, there are a lot of people at the other guilds who have, uh, you know, sort of been kicking the DGA a little bit for mm. making a deal with the AMPTP. Mm. Do you think that's fair? Mm. That's a loaded question. I know it is. Well, it's answer it the to, way you want to. It's hard for me to answer because I'm also in the Writers Guild and yeah. I'm also in SAG, and I also have you know, a lot of inside knowledge about you know what transpires. And I would only say that. Every union should get the best deal they can get. Mm. I mean, they really should. And, you know, the DJ has been saying very clearly the writers should. I believe as a Writers Guild member, what we're asking for is extremely necessary. It's necessary and it's needed. As a SAG member, in many ways, the AI stuff is even more pernicious and needs to be dealt with even more than you'd even think that it would, you know, certainly affect directors. So I'm across on all these things. So people do want to sort of go back and forth and say, you shouldn't have done this, you shouldn't have done that. But I got to give it to Chris Kaiser and David Goodman, who are my current leaders <laughs> at the Writers Guild. They have been classy all the way. They have not criticized the DGA deal. I think they're using some of it to help them build a better deal for the writers. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the DGA would have hoped for anyway, that there would be some a deal that you could start with. It would be sort of the beginning of something that then you can take your writer-specific things and hang them on and make these improvements. And I think that's kind of what's happening. So I'm actually grateful to the leadership of the Writers Guild. I think they've been strong. I think they've been consistent. And I think they, they're going to win in the end, actually. I really do think they are. That's an interesting place for you to be in, to be across all these guilds mm-hmm. and, and sort of wear so, so, such you know, multiple hats at the same time. Well, most of my work is as a director, but I, if I had it to do all over again, I would have just done writing. I mean, I started as an advertising copywriter. That's for the first 12 years of my life, I was working as a creative supervisor in an advertising agency, even before I started this whole directing thing. But if I could go back in time, I would have stuck with more of the show creating and writing end of it rather than the directing thing. It's so interesting mm. since, I mean, you made such a name for yourself as a director. Yeah, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> and, you know, you have to really like people and you have to like lots of people. And you have to like lots of people asking you hundreds of questions a day <laughs> as opposed to the joy of writing. There is something beautiful about being able to sit in your house and make your coffee yeah. and just do your work and imagine your world. I mean, it's it's really the, being the architect and then leaving the people to build the house later. <laughs> and there's something beautiful about that. So was it the music videos first? That, yeah, uh, that I started was your... music videos. I had done one TV commercial with Elizabeth Taylor. And then I did music videos. <laughs> oh, do you know her? She's, she's an actor. She's, she's been around. Was it for one of her She's been around. No, it was for her perfumes. I, I was in advertising and I had, we had a pro bono client, the American Foundation for AIDS Research, 
1986. They had just begun, and they were one of our clients. And I wrote a commercial for them, and Elizabeth Taylor was going to be in it. And uh, the director refused to pay for his own flight to come to California to shoot Elizabeth Taylor. So she said, you do it, Paris. So you're the writer. So I, as a writer, got on a plane from New York and went to to L.A. to direct Elizabeth Taylor. And that was my first real directing gig. And she could not have been lovelier. Was that the White Diamonds commercial? No, this is for Amphar, for the American Foundation. It was a PSA. And so she hadn't even started White Diamonds yet. So it was actually a great experience. It taught me a lot. She sat in the chair and she looked around and she said, Paris, you need to lower that light. (laughs) (laughs) And that light needs to go out. (laughs) <laughs> and then she just sat there while we were scrambled to get rid of the light she didn't like. And I'm thinking she has been on the sets with the greatest cinematographers of all time. And she knows where the lights need to be to look like Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. And they weren't in that right place. <laughs> and she redirected them. I mean, what a way to start <laughs> yeah. your directing career. I, mean, I know, but I did learn something, which has helped me, which is actors can be right. <laughs> and a lot of directors don't learn that for a very yeah. long time. But I learned it from day one. And then how did that go to music videos? Um, then I quit advertising when I was approached by a friend, Joel Hinman, to create a music video company because there were no black directors. Well, very few. And there were all these black artists, this is the end of the 80s, who were really popping, rap was just starting, you know, and, and there were no directors who were black. So we created a company called Black and White Television to represent black directors and get them into uh, working for uh, black artists. So suddenly mm-hmm. I'm doing Kwame, the boy genius, and Kid and Play, and then eventually LL Cool J. And because of my relationship with LL Cool J, I did eight videos with him, including Mama Said Knock You Out. I just rose to, you know, become a music video yeah. guy. I got the MTV Award and Billboard Award and all that stuff. Oh, those, those videos. Okay, so I'm so excited. <laughs> To ask you about this. <laughs> okay, okay. Because okay. one of the things I've been obsessed with for years is those the, the music videos like around 1990. Mm-hmm. And you directed – my heyday. Yeah, yeah, and you directed yeah. the pinnacle of it, Around the Way Girl by L.O. Cool J. There was this thing where for a period of time, every video, but especially that one – you would have the artist and the dancers dancing in front of a green screen of videos of them walking around. And I'm still to this day, every once in a while, I'll go back and I'll watch Around the Way Girl because it just reminds me of 1990 and watching MTV and being obsessed with that that whole trope of just like – they're dancing in front of videos of them dancing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or sometimes subway trains yeah. moving through yeah. the city. Uh, I should tell you a secret because you've thought about it a little bit. Uh, Around the Way Girl is that way because we spent all the money on Moms to Knock You Out. Those two videos were done <laughs> the same weekend. Wow. Um, and I think we did Around the Way Girl first, and we did it all on video. And Todd L. Cool J was actually shooting some of it with a handheld yeah, video Yeah, you camera. see him in the video with a handheld <laughs> camera. And did it super cheap and the dancing, and obviously the visual effects were not very well finished. And we just said, we just got to get this out. We just, we just need to do this video. And so that one cost X amount of the total amount we had. And then we spent all the money on Moms to Knock You Out, which was shot in black and white film yeah. and 35 millimeter. Right. And yeah. All this other stuff. And so in order to balance it, that's what we did. And Around the Way Girl ended up being 
the first hit. It ended up going gold. MTV wouldn't play it because it was on video, and MTV didn't like the video uh-huh. look until it went gold, and then MTV played it. Yeah. And then Mama Said Knock You Out came after that. So that was a very profitable weekend for me in my career. <laughs> <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen Mike more excited about something. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like, we've seen I mean, It's him. so funny. No yeah. one ever brings up Around the Way Girl. Usually <laughs> they bring up Jingling Baby that I did is the other <laughs> in which I'm in. Those you can look it up. I appear as LL Cool J's manager oh, in Jingling Baby. Okay, we need to go back and yeah, watch definitely that. definitely looking yeah. that up. And he addresses me. The first words in the video says, Paris! Yeah. Paris, what's up, man? What's the story with that Darien, Connecticut thing? I'm not going to make it to the promotion. You know, Darien, Connecticut, you're very big in the malls out there. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm going to a party around the way. I'm not trying to hear all that, man. Yo, yo check this out here. <laughs> He's calling me on the phone. <laughs> It's uh, very funny. This is it's, this this all this it's entire interview led up to that <laughs> to moment. This moment when he's right, I just want to know all about the LL videos because yeah, that was that was that was my that was when I was in high school and like, well, he was, those he was very inspirational to me. Dad, he is a person. Is I don't know if you ever interviewed him. He's one of the loveliest people. Yeah. smartest. He always is very studious. He studied poetry. He just doesn't. You know, make up shit. He's a businessman. He cares about his family. He's like a role model to me and was could not have been more gracious. I don't think I would have the career I have today without LL Cool J. And I went back to NCISLA, not the kind of show I would normally do just because Todd was there. Yeah. And I wanted to direct him and I wanted to have that experience of working with him again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I love it. Paris, we could we could talk to you all day. All day. And, and we could. we're not going to. And you have a lot of notes, but I do. <laughs> and you got to some of them, but not got, all. You didn't exactly. ask you about what shows I'm watching, which I was totally prepared to. Oh, oh well, well, what are you watching? Yeah. yeah. What's what's on your hit list? I don't right watch now? anything. <laughs> You're no, prepared to say I should nothing. say I should say I watch very little, but the one show I have watched every single episode of since its inception, and I know this is gonna seem insane, is Survivor. Yes. Wow. wow. I have Love. not, 648 episodes, yep. 20 plus years, mm-hmm. I have not missed an episode of Survivor. Even when I'm traveling, I'll mm-hmm. download it and I'll watch it. Um, I have been a Survivor fan since the beginning and I just can't get enough of it. And I think it's sort of the opposite in some ways of what I do. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of constructed, <laughs> unconstructed, and the people are always super interesting to me. And I watch it now with my kids. You know, they've grown up suffering through Survivor with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I try and encourage them to go on the island. They say, you go on the island. They say, I can't, I can't even go glamping, much less to go on an island well, Mike White with did bugs. It. That's why I say Mike White did it. Anyone could do it. You could do Mike it. Mike White did it, and I was, I was very proud of him, but I could not do that. Yeah, no. yeah. So we just watch it and enjoy it. That's probably my number one. Uh, and I watch The Chef You Love. I'm very like, you know, I watch The Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, I cried my eyes out at Long Time Gone, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in The Last of Us. Um, I, I wa- Industry is the one show that I watch that no one seems to be watching but me, of my friends. Do you watch That's, Industry at all? Watch some Industry. I yeah, really, my, yeah. wa- industry. my wife has watched Industry a lot. I like Industry. I like being in England in general. I just really – I just think that show is great and the yeah. performances are terrific. And um, I don't watch the sort of soap opera-y – Stuff I don't watch The Crown. My husband watches The Crown. He's always watching. But I watch a lot of documentaries when I'm not, uh, you know, doing it. And I watch, you know, obviously a lot of Ryan Murphy shows because mm-hmm. I work on them and I want to know what he's doing. Yeah. So yeah. I have to stay up with that. Would you want to come back for 
Menendez brothers next? I would yeah. if it ever comes. If we get back <laughs> to work get and back, we yeah. do it, yeah, I would probably do the Menendez brothers. I don't have the same visceral feeling about that story that I had with Dahmer, <laughs> so I could probably do that. And I believe it's shooting in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which I like a show that shoots yeah. in Los Angeles because yeah. nice. I can stay home. Um, and also, they're going to have a twist on it. They're going to. He's mm-hmm. going to. It's a story told, but he's going to tell it in a different way. I haven't seen mm-hmm. the scripts. I don't know this to be fact. I'm just guessing. Yeah. So yeah, I would Ryan come loves back a for twist. The, he yep. loves a twist. Well, and with there are new new things still coming out about the Menendez case even <laughs> now. So we'll, well, so. I also just did American Sports Story, which is the Aaron Hernandez story that's going to yeah. be coming out. And new stuff keeps coming out about that oh. too. It's like yeah. these stories never die. Yeah, they just keep you know they just keep evolving. Yeah. yeah. Wow, so so a lot to look forward to. A lot uh, to look forward to. Hopefully, it'll be on your television if your television still works when the strike is over. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, or, your, or your phone, or your iPad, or, or wherever or you find your device. Watch it. It'd be really nice for all of us to still have jobs. <laughs> exactly. Well, a lot more to come from Paris Barclay. Paris, thanks so much for for coming by. Good luck with the Emmys and everything else. And Thank you very much. I appreciate you yeah. having me. And it'll be a long time till the Emmys, so we can talk some more. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully we'll all be around yeah. still. Exactly. <laughs> That's Paris Barclay, Emmy-nominated for Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, now streaming on Netflix. After the break... Emmy-nominated Succession director Mark Mylod. From Los Angeles, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Netflix presenting Wednesday. From the imagination of Tim Burton, Wednesday is nominated for 12 Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Comedy Series, Lead Actress Jenna Ortega, and first-time Emmy nominee Tim Burton for Outstanding Directing for a Comedy Series. The LA Times raved, Wednesday is brilliant on every level. And Pace said, Tim Burton is an expert in immersive world building. His celebrated team of artisans received Emmy nominations for outstanding contemporary costumes from Colleen Atwood, music composition and main title theme music from Danny Elfman, production design, cinematography, contemporary makeup, special visual effects, and more. Consider Wednesday. And we're back. It's the Variety Award Circuit Podcast, and I'm Michael Schneider. Many devotees of Succession assume that sometime during its final season, the show's patriarch, Logan Roy, would die. But Logan dying in Episode 3, Connor's Wedding, was a complete shock. Written by Succession creator Jesse Armstrong and directed by executive producer Mark Mylod, the episode has two main settings. A boat on which Connor Roy, played by Alan Ruck, and his siblings Kendall, played by Jeremy Strong, Roman, played by Kieran Culkin, and Shiv, played by Sarah Snook, are gathered in the Waystar Royco plane, where Logan is flying with his executive team, including Tom, played by Matthew McFadden. Hey, Roman. Yeah. Hey, uh, your dad is very sick. He's very, very sick. What? What? Uh, it's okay. Tom is apparently dad's sick. Uh, what do you mean he's sick? Like, sick what? like... What's going on? Tom? Tom, are you still there? Is he okay? What's going on? Uh, what is it? Is he okay? Who's with him? Uh, had a uh, very serious... Ser- no, serious what? It, it, it is very, very bad. It, it seems very bad. I'm so sorry to call you like this. Can you put him on the phone? Who's there, Tom? What's going on? What, what um, happened? So, he was short of breath, and he went into the bathroom, and... He was gone, and there was... Uh, someone heard something, and he was... Uh, we were concerned. And then they went in there. They, they went in, they broke in? They broke in. They, uh, they, uh, they had the key and they got in there. And, but he's not is responsive. He's, is he still in there? Or did he's, he's, he's non-responsive? 
Yeah, is he yeah. talking? Can he can he talk? Is he breathing? They're doing chest compressions. Oh fuck! Has his heart stopped? Has his heart stopped? Uh, I don't know. Do you I guys? Do you have I the machine uh, on board? The fucking the, the heart the, thing? The, 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 yeah, yeah you have that? Not okay, I don't fucking is, know. Tom, what's going on, Tom? Who's in charge? Who's in charge? What is going on no, right now? Who is medically competent there? They're trained. The, the the people, the the attendant is trained. I'm gonna put you on speaker. Hold the on. fucking flight attendant. The episode has earned Mark Mylod another Emmy nomination for directing for a drama series. I recently spoke with Mylod about the decision to end Succession and the reaction to that final episode, as well as his recent comedic thriller, The Menu, and more. I began by asking him about any surprise perks that have come out of being recognized for his part in the success of Succession. Yeah, maybe a couple of good restaurant bookings in Rome, actually, just by just by our local contacts there, but not not by merit of the name of the show, certainly. Yeah, not like a private jet or... Uh... <laughs> I did get an offer of a private jet. I got off, I can't remember the name of the, some billionaire. Oh, God, yeah, some billionaire in LA. I live in Brooklyn. Um got hold of my email from somewhere and dropped me an email saying, hey, we'd love to see the menu. Could you come out on our jet to Los Angeles to screen it for us? This was before the movie actually came out uh, with this fantastically kind of casual tone as if, um, as of course I would, because I've got a private jet. So of course I'll jump on their private jet and go and screen it for them. Um, it, it was, um, there was an extraordinary entitlement to it. Um, not unfriendly, but just complete expectation that if they asked for something, it would happen. Yeah. Well, so there you go. It's it's like the Roy's in real life. Exactly. So yeah. They do exist. So. <laughs> well, Mark, congratulations uh, on, on the Emmy nod. I mean, Connor's wedding, that seems like the perfect one because I know that was a labor of love for you. You did some really unique things with this and pulling off that, that one long shot. And uh, I, I know this episode, even though it was the third of the season, usually it would be the finale that you probably would be nominated for. But this one, there was this extra level of difficulty in, in pulling this off. So in, in your mind, does does this make sense? Does this feel like, yeah, we, we put a lot of work into, of course, this, this third episode, this landmark episode. Uh, so I'm sure you must be pleased to be recognized for it. Oh, of course, yeah, it's a huge honor, obviously, when it's one's peers. Um, and and yes, I, I, of course, I'm delighted. Um, and episode three, particularly on some level for me, represented the zenith of the whole kind of creed that we'd evolved over the over four seasons and how we how we shoot the show, how we try to milk every ounce of tension or intimacy just to, to work every moment. And uh, and that particular scene or chunk of the episode i suppose from the moment the siblings first get that call from tom on the plane to when they tell connor and they kind of migrate upstairs onto the top deck for for more privacy it was such an unbroken kind of stream of consciousness in the writing beautiful writing from jesse as ever um that it just in my head it kind of cried out for that total immersion for everybody particularly the cast obviously um and so just working the problem with all of the crew um and everybody made a contribution to to kind of solving the problem of how to shoot you know a half hour unbroken take when when a roll of film only lasts 10 minutes on over three levels of the deck um it was such a um, it was so incredibly satisfying not just to kind of solve the puzzle but but going into the edit afterwards and 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 seeing that 
flow of performance in the immersion of the cast in that. So it, it felt like like the craft and the whole way that we make the show was really servicing the script in the best possible way. Yeah, and and it seems like you took the experience of that and and then employed it later in the season again with the the funeral, for example, and being able to do another sort of really complicated long shot. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and do you look back now at both of these episodes, but especially Connor's wedding, since since that's the nominated one? Um, have you watched it a couple of times over? Do you sort of get to get a chance to sort of marvel at it as a fan as well and, and sort of watching how it, it was pulled off? No, I, I wish I could. I, I would really, that would be nice. Um, I, I mean, massive relief, obviously, that the episode and the season generally was well received. Um, Jesse and I, you know, with each kind of new season, just have our conversation of just, okay, is this the year we get found out? You know, is this the year... <laughs> unconscious complacency creeps in and we just slip you know and our standard and just the, the fear of that and the insecurity of that um i suppose that's also been a spur to, to both of us and i think speaking for the whole team uh, just to when you've got writing that good you really want to do it justice um um as for um and i'm sorry Mark, i've completely forgotten the question when insecurities <laughs> Well, no, I was well, and, and this kind of goes along with it. Uh, I'm curious: do you do you go back and watch it? Do you go back and critique yourself? Do you go back and say, "Oh, wow, how did we do that"? Um, I don't. I don't go back and watch um, because I know that I will do the kicking myself thing. I've when when I've done it in the past, it's always been like, "Oh man," and I, and I'll take no pleasure in in the stuff that maybe has worked well or is. Um, it's the, it's the mistakes you've made um or the things you could have done better the moment you that, that you've missed if if we talk again in the future it's too close to it now there's a there's something i missed in one of the episodes in season four a detail or an opportunity actually it's not necessarily a mistake but it's an opportunity to have taken a moment further and it kills me it eats me up and i, I genuinely it's too raw now to kind of admit it um really but, even yeah. now even a couple months later honestly mate it's honestly i can feel yeah, the kind of I can feel blood rushing to my face just remembering it in our conversation. So I don't get I don't get kind of pleasure in rewatching things, and so I don't um, not not for a long time, if ever. Um, in fact, I can't think of anything that I've rewatched. Um, there's you know obviously once we finish shooting, one dives deep into the edit, and, um, and by the time that process is completed, and and my my kind of pleasure was that I think is watching it back um, for the first time with Nick Brattel's score mixed in. And that is always a huge pleasure just to listen to his work on the big speakers in the, in, in, in the mixing room um, to, to hear his work is, uh, and how much that elevates um, the, the piece is, um, is always, a, that's my treat, I suppose. Yeah. And that final mix is done then, to me, it has to be put to bed for for yeah. Otherwise, it will do me harm. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, it's got to air. At some point, it's got to go on the air. So you you do have to to, to let it go. But exactly, um, yeah. That Nicholas Patel soundtrack. I mean, there, there's a reason why he's constantly nominated as well. I mean, it's oh, it's yeah. the whole the whole package. His work in in episode three, particularly. I mean, the, well, apart from that, that that closing suite that he did for the finale episode, season finale, which I just adore, and it breaks my heart every time I hear it. Um, but um, in season three, he did this in in episode three, rather Connor's wedding. He did this. Uh, 
I thought really bold and, and, and beautiful choice. We, you know, the the branding of the music, if you like, I can't think of a better term, has always been piano and 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 strings. That that's been the sound, if you like, um, uh, and it and it's uh, and it's had that very classical um, feel to it, which has supported the, the the kind of waltz and ballet of the piece, I think, beautifully, but. In that particular, going back to that kind of one one taker, if you like that that twenty eight minute take, during that he he went in a completely different direction. I'm not sure if uh, I suppose people watch it very carefully, but um, it almost um, slides in by stealth from the moment that that I think Tom says to um, to Kieran's character to Roman on the phone in case it's the last time, referring to maybe the last time to talk to your father on the phone. Um, from that moment, this um, this beautiful kind of almost um, unconscious, introspective, very low score starts, um, which continues in sections throughout throughout that section, and is completely different from anything we'd ever done. We'd never done a kind of introspective score like that before. And I remember when I first listened to it, it's almost like I didn't hear it consciously, but I was aware of this almost slightly surreal feeling and, un- and clammy, unconscious, panicky interior feeling without ever going into, you know, into a thriller or a psychological um, pulse. It, it, but it was just a creeping dread in the, in the way he scored that, which I thought was phenomenal. Um, I, I really did. And, and if, if for nothing else, you know, I, I, I'm so happy he got nominated just because of that yeah. brilliant, brilliant section. Well, th- that's right in that that sort of threading that needle of what you're trying to do with with the the episode and and sort of the confusion and the chaos, but it's not, it it's never uh, it's not a horror story. It's it's a lot of confusion and it's so real. And, and I, I know a lot's been written about how it's it's sort of a true aspect of this modern tech age where you're getting bits and pieces of information. Some of it's correct. Some of it's not. And the irony of this being as a well-connected uh, uh, era where we should be able to get all the information we need on our phones, but we don't. And it's even more confusing because you think you should be getting all the information. You still don't know what's going on and and what they're trying to figure out and what uh, you know, Matthew is, is uh, McFadden's character is trying to, uh, uh, you know, explain their Tom from from the plane. And there it's it's and we're as a viewer just sort of like, what is going on? We haven't seen the body, so we don't really know what's going on either. I mean, that was really that that putting the it's a brilliant thing that when we do manage to pull that off. And this is, I think, uh, part of the brilliance of Jesse's writing is that I think think that in that section we the audience are somewhat put into the into the heads of the characters of the siblings with with that shared kind of frustration of what the hell is going on here is this is this some sick joke that logan is playing on them and that that lack of information of is this really happening we the audience are sharing that experience of the siblings which i think kind of doubles down on the intensity of the experience yeah no, no, absolutely. And and I know and I've read a lot of uh, conversations you've had about sort of adding to uh Matthew's role because he just kicked it out of the park on the plane and and sort of looking at that footage and realizing no, what he's doing is amazing. Yeah. Uh and and adding that to to the mix and um he's a brilliant Matthew has this uncanny ability and you know, we I think we all know um how brilliant the cast are. But 
and I don't kind of wish to pick favorites, but there's this thing that Matthew does. He hides, he hides, um, he hides his emotion or the emotion of the character in the most intriguing way. And he has this ability to calibrate just how much he shows you of the the interior of the character um, and just when he wants to show it. Um, and it's an extraordinary gift because when it does suddenly flare and reveal itself, um, then it, it, his power is doubled because you feel you're getting a glimpse behind the curtain. And, uh, and, and Matthew employed that technique, that, that craft, that art, um, so beautifully in that whole section where there would just be these little moments where that facade of, okay, everything's under control, let's keep under control, um, keep my the tenor of my voice under control, where that would just slip, there'd be a crack in the in the voice, or or, or the shoulders would slump uh, at another moment of denial from Roman, or, or and, and you just get these little moments where you could just see how hard it is for the character to kind of keep the plate spinning in that moment, and I find it so... Uh, I remember watching it back in the edit and just thinking there's almost a version of this, a, a, an alternative cut you could do of this episode where you just stay on the plane with with Matthew and, the, uh, and, and his colleagues the entire time and you only hear the siblings off camera. Um, it was such a it was such almost an embarrassment of riches having all that material. How has HBO not asked you to cut different versions of that scene? <laughs> Bonus <Yes>. footage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I might get into strike territory. That might be uh, exactly like a yeah. cause for concern. I really can't do anything right now, but may, maybe one day we'll see that version. Yeah, quite. Maybe, yeah, maybe down the line. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, the, there, there's speaking of the characters, obviously, uh, the end of the episode where we see the three of them, uh, you know, sort of embrace and then go their separate ways as they all kind of grieve and react differently was is also still powerful. And I still think about and and I know, again, I've read that you got emotional even in sort of filming that and, and editing that. Yeah, I, I found incredibly affecting. I suppose I think I think, um, and I haven't gone back and checked the script on this. I think there was some stage direction that they say their goodbyes or something. Um, uh, I can't remember how explicit the stage direction was, so I don't wish to take away from Jesse's writing in any way. But the way they folded into one another was not directly scripted, and I hadn't given a specific direction on that. But they just found it anyway. They just folded into one another in. Uh, that gave you this glimpse of of a more innocent version of those characters. I think a, 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 a flashback to some childhood that perhaps didn't actually exist. But whenever we could find those glimpses of vulnerability and and, and innocence and uh, and that in a child in those characters, I, I always I always grasped it with both hands. I, I remember very clearly the first time I think we had that opportunity. It was back in season one. Um, I think in the penultimate episode at. Uh, Tom and Shiv's wedding, and 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 the siblings got together down at the boathouse. The the idea being that this was a place they used to come in their youth for a secret smoke or something. Um, and um, and there was something. It was one of the first times we really discovered an opportunity to get that glimpse, glimpse of uh, of a lighter shade. I suppose we, we'd always we always really were sticking them with the satire, obviously, and the essential tragedy of their existence. So, but finding those moments of innocence are, are a joy to me. And, and I found it incredibly powerful, that whole sequence. Yeah, I, there are always those moments when the three of them are actually in a room together and, and 
operating as actual siblings and getting along, which we saw several times this season. It's it's so, even though there is that impending dread of knowing this isn't going to last long and they're soon going to be stabbing each other in the back again. But for a <laughs> moment, they're, you know, making awful milkshakes and hanging out and having a good time. So I love that. I mean, the, the, the awful milkshake um, scene is one of my favorites. That happened to be the very last thing that we shot. In fact, you know, Christo, the first assistant director I worked with so closely, um, he um, he and I scheduled it specifically for that so that we, the crew, could have an illusion of a happy ending in some way by having this joyful scene as, as our last one. As it happened, it was actually really hard to shoot. Uh, and the stink in that kitchen, I, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I can't even begin to tell you. And and Jeremy actually drank it, right? I mean, he did. I kept telling him, but I, I I knew I was wasting my breath because Jeremy is Jeremy, and he's all or nothing, as we all know. Um, and uh, so there was no way he could ever get to that point, even by take seven or eight, because I'd shoot the whole thing back, you know, start to finish. That's just the way we do things. Um, and each time he just yeah, he couldn't stop himself. He was just so in the moment that unless even if I called cut, I think he'd still be in it. But there would be this thing that when I did call cut. He put the thing down, lean over, and wretch into oh. the um, next to him. It was so disgusting. This stuff that was going into it. That's that's an HBO extra I don't need to see. So we, we can <laughs> keep that in the cutting room floor. But um, yeah, that that final. I mean, the I, I'm sure you hear a lot from people and sort of what haunts them from from that final episode of of course Tom and Shiv and and that non handhold handhold moment and. Jeremy looking off at the sea. Uh, there, there's so much in that finale that I think months later we're all still kind of thinking about. But that's yeah, inc- I mean, the, the, I felt this extraordinary kind of responsibility shooting them. Uh, there's, you know, you get this res- beautiful responsibility of shooting the series finale, and um, and there's a real kind of horror that goes with that of of trying to do it justice, knowing that there is that additional weight on any series finale. That was, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, and if it doesn't work, then on some level, I felt that it might tarnish the the kind of legacy of the show if there is one. Um, and, and when it so, I think it's important, and it was important for me to keep quite a cold eye and try not to get seduced by the by the emotion of shooting these moments of. Uh, in case one gets too saccharine unconsciously in a moment or, or, or is too indulgent with it. And um, this was particularly heightened in those last few vignettes where we see each of them, uh, what they do next after that fateful meeting. Um, the hardest one, I think, for me anyway, and I, w- was shooting Jeremy's final scene, the coldest it wasn't if you remember it wasn't a terribly cold winter this year in new york but one day which happened to be the day that we were shooting um right down at the south end of of manhattan that was the day we were shooting it was actually unbelievably freezing it was something the wind chill was something minus 20 fahrenheit or something horrible um um and all the first few takes, all we could feel and, and all Jeremy could feel was just frozen cold, just frozen. There was nothing coming out. But as we edge closer to the water and that final take and that whole final section when he's at the bench and then uh, and then is at the water, that that was all one one take that we used for that because we hit this zone and we were losing the light anyway, where suddenly as the take was progressing, I could feel what is 
luckily for me, a very become quite a familiar feeling of this weight lifting from my shoulders when I know when I can just feel when we've got the moment and uh, and we've got our ending. And, and I remember feeling that almost kind of physically lifting off my shoulders as the tape was going and I thinking, okay, I know we've got it. I know we've got the moment where we can cut to black um, with that kind of Banquo's ghost of Colin um, uh, just upstage from, from Jeremy there. And uh, that was a huge moment for me because yeah, because I knew we had the very last moment of succession in the can. And did you feel at that moment, nailed it? Or? <laughs> um, goodness, no. I, I, I hope, you know, that I, hope I'm, I hope I'm not that smug. There's just too many other conflicting emotions of fear of, you know, what if there's a hair in the gate or, you know, what right. what if it's lost in the lab or something? Or, or what if I'm kidding myself, you know? Um, th- there's too many, <laughs> too much insecurity to ever get that smug. Sure, sure. At the same time, though, probably as you're shooting that that final episode, there there's must be that sense that, okay, we're landing the plane, and I think the fans are going to like this. I mean, how much do, does that play into your head? Like, you know what? This feels good. This feels like this is the ending that the show deserves, that people are going to uh, really well receive this, and okay, we're doing this. Yeah, the... um. The, the moment by moment, you know, the driving home at the end of a day shooting um, with that sense of, okay, we took that writing and we really pummeled it. You know, we, we we did everything we could to get everything we could from the day. That felt really good. And because we were shooting almost entirely chronologically, uh, as we always do whenever possible, um, that sense of feeling the flow that was in my head and certainly in Jesse's writing, I could feel that coming together. Um, I, I don't remember everything. Oh my God, we didn't get that. Um, but as for, as for how the audience will react, I, yeah, um, no, no, I had no idea and no, no expectation on that. Um, because who, yeah, who, who knows how an audience will receive anything you know, them, and, and trying to chase that. That's one of the reasons I don't look at, press and, and, and audience reactions when the show is airing because if one ties into that or, or chases that I, I feel that you lose something you lose a, the, the focus that you should have I, I think the focus has to be entirely on on the script and the characters and the deliverance of that as, as soon as one starts to make that a um, contingent on audience reaction then you then I think there's something that can go awry there now looking back seeing how things ended seeing the the reaction uh, it, does it feel good that you sort of the show ended on this note are you still bummed that maybe you didn't continue um or is there a feeling of good thing we didn't get to season seven and we're doing an all musical episode and the show's gone to shit <laughs> i still like the idea of a musical episode i must admit that very good singers in the cast um um no i feel that we ended at the right time i feel really good and right about that you know the you know i can't remember how long ago but a while ago we started having these conversations of when's the right time to end this and uh and there was something about the discipline of okay we lose logan in episode three in the fourth season and we play out those those next seven episodes or so uh, and and to see the fallout of that and that just felt right um you know who knows what's in the future what's in you know in jesse's kind of appetite um but it did feel like 
like the right time. I suppose quite specifically because the idea of doing anything where it felt like we were either treading water or diminishing the the emotional stakes season by season would feel such a shame. And we've all seen shows where the perception has been that they that they have done that, they've outstayed their welcome, and we just didn't want to be that show. Um, it, it, there's an all or nothing intensity to it that if it's not there, then I think it's nothing. It has to be absolutely all in. So yeah, for me, I feel I feel a lightness that we did it, that we chose to end at the right time. I tell you what should be next, of course, uh, and I don't know if anyone else has pitched this idea, but obviously Succession Babies, the animated series where it's Kendall, <laughs> Shiv, and Roman as kids. Every once in a while, Connor stops by, but animated, and it's just the the the, the adventures of them around age eight, nine, maybe younger. I think that's probably in the work somewhere, isn't it? <laughs> don't give don't give HBO any ideas, but or maybe do. I, I think I would watch the hell out of that. Absolutely watch that. Um, I, I, I kind of like the idea of a Victorian version as well, where you flashback where it's the same characters, but in some kind of time vortex where it's the like Dickensian times. I'd watch that, particularly if it was a cheesy musical as well. That would be great. And and at that point, it's, uh, you know, like a printing press baron of some sort. Oh, perfect. Yep. There we go. Now we like got it. <laughs> so it, obviously, we're we're in these sort of uh, uncertain times. So there's not much that I'm sure you can do right now. But in terms of down the path, once hopefully, fingers crossed, um, negotiations are successful, everyone's back to work. Uh, what's kind of on your docket? What are you excited about? Uh once cameras start rolling again, um, there's there's one there's one writer whose work I've loved for a long time, who I'm hopefully starting a project with. Um, once hopefully that the, the writers and actors have the deal they need. Um, um, I, I can't talk about it at the moment, which is annoying because I'm crazy excited about it. So I'm researching that world. Um, it's uh, it's it's in. It, uh, I don't want to be cryptic, yeah, but but. Uh, yeah it's not the right time to talk about that yet um but uh but i'm able to spend a bit of time just researching the world in which that that film will take place um i'm excited about that um other than that and this sounds massively indulgent because i've been working pretty much non-stop for the past three years between with two seasons of succession seasons three and four obviously and with the menu kind of sandwiched between those two projects pretty much back to back i'm i'm a bit mentally tired of without wishing to sound too um we'll see but um <laughs> so now that's yeah, yeah just emptying my head a bit and not working and just being there for my kids a bit is um yeah, that's um that's kind of necessary you know it, yeah. even if you were to strike i would need to be doing that at the moment just to just to get hungry again i think um for for the next for the next adventure nothing nothing wrong with that uh, especially the spending time with your kids part um but speaking of hungry look at this segue nice the menu i mean mark let, the menu just like it it, it just like smacked me in the face how good that film was and how fun that was and the moment where it takes that turn uh and takes you on an entirely different ride i mean what what a film i mean and and that cast and the whole story to, and and, and I, it, 
just I'm still thinking about it. And for folks who haven't checked out the the menu yet, uh, I, I know it's available out there to stream now. You know, definitely catch up on it. Uh, that what what a what an interesting film to do between seasons uh, and and sort of explore a lot of the same issues that you explore on Succession uh, about privilege and and talent gone awry and and, and a lot of a lot of. Yeah, there were a lot of overlaps, weren't there, thematically. I, I am really, and thank you so much for your kind words, Mike. Um, I am really proud of it. And I'm, um, and there was definitely getting a monkey off my back, actually making a film that I was genuinely proud of, which is, you know, a, a long-standing ambition. I, I'd stayed away from features for, for a while to, to you know, think if I care, if I get one more shot, I better make sure I've got something to say. And uh, I'm working with Will Tracy, actually, on on Succession back in, season two with an episode called Turnhaven, we formed a lovely collaboration along with his co-writer, Seth Reese. We, we teamed up for the menu and I was so, um, so inspired by their script uh, and um, by this kind of odd triangle, I suppose, of uh, a satire, horror and comedy and trying to hit the kind of tonal bullseye with that was a lovely creative challenge. Um, and just sort of, there's that old saying, isn't there, about all you know, good things come to a good script. And um, and we did get this phenomenal cast together, you know, courtesy of Mary Vernu, this brilliant casting director that I worked with. Um, and so the actual shooting of it, even though you know it was tough in the we're deep into COVID restrictions at the time, um, was a real joy. It was crammed into a little warehouse down in savannah georgia with a lovely local crew mainly um from savannah and this brilliant cast to work with um with me really flexing my robert altman fantasies about um you know how to work with a cast in this kind of semi-improvisational way beyond you know beyond the scripts and and them just rising to that so beautifully it was a total joy and 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 to to feel that project come together in post and to put the the food and satirical elements into it and to uh, there's no way not to do bad food puns here but to get those ingredients in the in the right kind of blend and ratios was was a really lovely experience and it just made me hungry for to you know oh god sorry um made me um really keen um to explore you know explore more films which was you know something that I'd not quite turn my back on but something that I wasn't making much headway with prior to that. That's all right. When you say it's a joy, all I could think of is, was it an Anya Taylor joy? <laughs> That's even worse than my films. Uh, you know, we're, we're <laughs> all in it together. But yeah, that, uh, you know, all I could say is I've never seen a more delicious cheeseburger. I know that. Yeah. Uh, that, it, it's funny. That's probably the, the one thing that people will say, actually. I said, love the film, went outside, had a cheeseburger. Um, yeah, that was, uh, it, it's funny. I don't actually eat much red meat myself, but, um, uh, you know, we boosted the sales of cheeseburgers. I'm very proud. <laughs> there you go. Now you just, you, you need some points. You need, uh, you know, a steak in, in big cheeseburger, whoever's in charge of that. <laughs> At least the discount in McDonald's. Ex- ex- exactly. Well, Mark, uh, congratulations uh, again on, landing this ship quite well uh, and a well-deserved break. So enjoy that as well. And uh, can't wait to see what you've got uh, coming next. So please do keep in touch. Thanks so much, Mike. It's lovely talking to you. Thanks so much. That's Mark Mylod, executive producer and director of HBO Succession, Emmy nominated for Connor's Wedding. Catch up on Max. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. 
Zach Levin edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest awards predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tanke, Emily Longaretta, and Clayton Davis, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. This episode is brought to you by Netflix presenting Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer Story. LA Weekly called it one of the best TV shows of the year. Nominated for 13 Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Limited or Anthology Series, Lead Actor Evan Peters, Supporting Actress Niecy Nash Betts, and Supporting Actor Richard Jenkins, and nominations for Directing, Editing, Sound Mixing and Editing, Hairstyling, Makeup, Costumes, and Casting. Variety called Dahmer an undeniable zeitgeist hit.